All right, so back we go then to Proverbs chapter 10. It'll be our aim to finish out Proverbs 10, move on to chapter 11 next week, Lord willing. You know, whenever I say that now, because we have changed the schedule, I, I haven't obviously memorized the schedule when the licentious will be in the pulpit. Sometimes I think next week, and then I wonder, oh, is it really next week? Or maybe it's two weeks out. Maybe I forgot that somebody else is preaching next week. I don't think so. Um, I think we had that last week, so I think I'm safe. <laughs> anyway. Uh, more uh, strange and weird musings from the mind of Pastor Todd. <laughs> okay, well, let's begin our reading in verse 27. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Proverbs 10, 27. Here now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. The way of the Lord is strength to the upright, but destruction shall be to the workers of iniquity. The righteous shall never be removed, but the wicked shall not inhabit the earth. The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Let's hear once again from Thomas Manton. Figured we'd make Thomas Manton our quotation in the morning and in the afternoon. That it is not enough to avoid evil communication, but our speech must be ordered by grace to the benefit of others. Besides vain babbling, there are two defects. Some are, d- are dumb and tongue-tied in holy things. They can speak liberally of any subject that occurreth, but are dumb in spiritual matters, which concern edification. Men show so little grace in their conferences because they have so little grace in their hearts. Many carry it as if they were ashamed to speak of God or had nothing to say of Him or for Him. You are not bound always to speak of religious things, but sometimes you are bound. Now, when you interpose a word for God in a serious and a uh, now, when when do you excuse me? When do you interpose a word for God in a serious and affectionate manner? Others jangle about disputable opinions, and all their talk is controversy, as if the plain and unconverted, uncontroverted points were not worth the owning. Yet in these the life and power of godliness consisteth. This is like leaving bread and gnawing upon a stone. In nature, necessary things are obvious. So, in the universe of religion, to inculcate on each other the vital truths and most necessary duties. Controversies have their place. But the ordinary discourse of Christians should be about the most necessary things. Thus far, Thomas Manton, giving us some instruction as to how to use our mouths, our lips, our speech. And of course, our focus today is 31 and 32 of Proverbs 10, 
The mouth of the just bring forth wisdom. The froward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. So in our exposition, I want to do something that we haven't done before, I don't think. I want to speak to you theoretically about the importance of words and how we understand words as the Bible speaks about words. You know, there are all kinds of uh, philosophical systems that speak to us about words, right? Language and Theology is a book written by Dr. Clark uh, trying to hone that back and bring it back to the Scriptures. There are... Uh, philosophical systems that will talk about the inadequacy of human language truly to be the vehicle of thought, if you will. That we are so uh, different from one another, isolated from one another in our experiences, in our age, in our histories, um, in our occupations, in our callings, whatever, such that it really makes no sense at all to try to communicate with one another. There's a lot of that going on. As a matter of fact, we might say about our own age that never, ever has an age had so many words and so little communication. It's not just words then, but indeed the content of what is said and how we handle those words. Words are spoken all of the time, but like Charlie Brown's authority, it's wah-wah, 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 a lot of times, isn't it? Well, here we learn in Proverbs chapter 10 that we ought never to think about words like that at all. That words have meaning, they have value. And what I wanted to do was just remind you of that. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to tell you anything you haven't either thought of before or heard before. But what a great refresher it is to go, if you will, back to the beginning and talk about words for a little bit, set up the theory of words from a biblical standpoint rather than letting the philosophers who say words don't mean anything to communicate to us in words that words don't mean anything. I hope you got that. And... Hear what God has to say about words and why words are important. Okay? So let's, let's do that. Let's, let's make a, a little bit of an effort to, to begin with our conception of how the Bible presents, first of all, the Godhead to us. One of the things that we read about God is that there are three persons in God. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And these three persons are the same God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, and that they are all eternal. They have all lived forever in what we would call a divine complacency. God is satisfied with himself. Those old evangelical uh, preachers that I grew up hearing saying, you know, well, God just got lonely one day and had to create man. No, no. If God got lonely, then God had need. Guess what? He's not God anymore. That's really the depth of that error. If God got lonely, then he wasn't really God. Instead, the three persons of the Trinity existed in complete love and complacency with one another for all eternity. There was no need there. God created because he would share his love with his creatures. 
But creation is not an act of necessity within the Godhead. It is not an opera ad intra, if you will. It's not part of what it is to be God inside the Godhead. No, the creation is an opera ad extra. God determined that he would share his love with creatures, and so he created for our benefit, and we add nothing to him and never do. And yet, the Bible also tells us that there were words spoken among the three persons of the Godhead in eternity. That in some sense, and this is going to be a divine sense, and we can't peer too far into that, but there was certainly words spoken and promises exchanged before the world began. There were commitments that the Godhead made, and they are spoken of to us in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. And we learn two things about God and words there, don't we? The first thing that we learn is that God is the unlying God. He's the apsevdos theos, the unlying God. There's no falsehood in him. Everything he says is true. And why is that? It is because his voice is creative of reality and truth itself. And that in that eternal conversation and love between the persons of the Trinity, that promises were made and commitments exchanged. God, can I say it this way? Speaks in the eternal councils. Words are found in the eternal councils. Now this does several things for us, beloved. This tells us that words are meaningful. They're not meaningless at all. That they are filled with reality and truth. That there is such a thing then as truth. Because the unlying God spoke before the world began. And when he spoke... He spoke true. He spoke truth. He spoke commitment. He spoke promise. And because those words were spoken, we will be those sons that are brought to glory in the end. So that's Titus chapter 1. So we, we learn, don't we, that there is this intercommunication between the persons of the Godhead Now, I'm not going to say covenant because, again, covenant is not an opera ad intra. It's not a part of the Godhead. They were not in covenant. God is not essentially covenantal in that sense. Covenant is something that God adds in the way that he condescends to man. He condescends to us by way of covenant. And yet, when he does so, we understand that covenant is something spoken, something with words But beyond that, beloved, we will note, won't we, from John chapter 1. Please turn with me there. That when God would introduce his son to the world through the apostle John, he will say of this son, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. We will hear also in 1 John chapter 1 verses um, verses 1 and following 
what we're talking to you about here, and we'll not take the time to turn, but we're talking about the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we declare it unto you. Notice how essential in all of these things words are. Not only is God talking in the eternal councils, but when he would send his son to the, to the world, and when Jesus Christ would become the revealer of the Godhead, he is given the title, the Logos of God. The very word of God. And of course we see that in John 1, 1, 1 John 1, 1 John 5, 7, the, the verse that many of your Bibles don't have in it. Oh, well, maybe all of yours do because you're all using the authorized version. It says that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And these three agree in one. Or, sorry, these three are one. The Spirit, the water, and the blood comes next. They witness on earth, and these three agree in one. And then in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, sorry, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, we read about our great high priest. And how is he introduced? He is introduced for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing between joints and marrow. Right? And then what, what does the writer say? And there is no creature that is not manifest in his sight. Him being the word. And then finally we read in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 that his name is called the Word of God. So, beloved, we have, I'm sorry, that's Revelation 19.13. My eye went to a different portion of my notes. Revelation 19.13, he hath a name, and that name is that he is the Word of God. Of God, And so when God would communicate to us, he would use that word, word, logos. Most of you know that I appreciate the writings of Dr. Gordon Clark. One of the things that Dr. Clark will say in his understanding of John 1.1 is it might be understood as in the beginning was the logic. And the logic was with God and the logic was God. Well, I think that's okay so far as it goes. But the logic is an expressed logic. And that's why the word word or logos is used. That God would speak to us that our Lord Jesus Christ in being that revealer of God would, quote, use words. In God's economy, beloved, in the way God has chosen to reveal himself, he has made language essential, not, not uh, a nice to have. He has made it an essential. I do agree with Dr. Clark when, when, when he will write that truth is essentially propositional. That when, when we're going to communicate truth, we must communicate it in propositional sentences, propositional phrases, right? That have a, a, a noun and a to be verb that brings it together and then, a, and then a descriptor or the word was God. That that is truth. That's a truth statement. And something that is true can never be unsaid. There is truth that God reveals to us in his word that will always be true. And then the final motion in this is what? That God reveals himself to us in his written word. We have the word personal and the word written. 
And in both of those ways, God has revealed himself to us. And even if we would, with, say, some of the Thomists, uh, say that God has also revealed himself to us in a kind of natural revelation, what would we do with that natural revelation? It doesn't speak to us without words, does it? We put it in words. And we ferret out the truth sentences and propositions that are shown to us in the things that are made. Beloved, in God's economy, words are not a nice to have. They're a must have. They are an essential thing. And if you think about that for a moment with me, you'll recognize that God could have done it any other number of ways. He could have created human beings, mutes, all of us, without a spoken language and The only thing that we did was we were all expert artists and we drew pictures and held them up to everybody. He could have revealed things directly to our mind by his spirit because his mind encompasses all minds, doesn't it? And all truth could have come to us through some sort of heavenly zapping, if you will, where we simply intuitively knew truth. But he has not manufactured the process in that way. He's told us that words are going to be important. And he establishes this with the first Adam. Let's go back to the garden for a moment. If we read chapter 2, well, really the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis... It's a very interesting thing. The first thing that I will say here is that when God created, he created by the power of his word. Isn't that true? God said, let there be light. And what happened? Light that didn't before then exist immediately obeyed and sprung into existence. Right? God's voice in that day was creative of the reality that is. And so we have the the personal Son of God, we have the written Word of God, but we also have the Word of God active in creation. It is by the Word of God that the heavens are made. You don't need to turn there if you don't if you don't like, but in Psalm thirty three, verse six By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He, gather, he gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. You hear that? God speaks the world into existence. And then what does he do? By his counsels, by his intentions and plans, it is sustained. 
We want to think of that scroll in Revelation chapter 5 that our Lord Jesus only is able to open. It is what? Written on both sides. No, the Lord has presented this to us very clearly that it is by his word that everything is created. So let's look at this conversation in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image. Notice an inter-Trinitarian discussion. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowls of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him, male and female, created he them. Now watch again. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And every beast of the earth, and every fowl of the air, and everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. You know what the next thing that God spoke was? According to Moses here in chapter 2. He spoke the blessing of the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He said, this day is the day that receives my blessing. And of course, to bless means to speak words of blessing, right? To, to bring forth words of admiration, of respect and honor that are put upon something. And then it also says that God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. <clears throat> so God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. So in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, we see God said to Adam several things. He used words. He blessed them. He commanded them. Uh, he, he will speak later about children and marriage and taking dominion. And by implication, he blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it for Adam. Now in chapter 2, uh, we, we will begin our reading in verse 18. And the Lord God said, well, you know what, we need to back up a little bit. Verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Let me ask you, from what we've seen so far, do you think God says, how did Adam know to dress and keep the garden? Well, God told him to. He spoke to him. God has used words this whole way through. He's going to continue using words. God has always used words to reveal himself to man, such that when he would send his only son to be that primary revealer of man, he gives him the name, the word of God. So he commanded mankind concerning the use of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in 15 and 16 and 17. He, he threatens man with regard to death. He enters into what we call that covenant of works, which is a spoken covenant that God makes with Adam in that day. And then in verse 18, and the Lord God said, 
It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would what? Call them. This is the first time we see man speaking a word. And what is the word that man speaks? He speaks dominion over the creatures. God tells him, you name them. You're in charge of them. And so Adam does. He speaks a word of dominion over the creatures. Again, he is speaking at this point in his life, truth. This is that true word. His lips are full at this point of the knowledge that God has already taught him. And so now they come forth. Those lips speak forth other truth. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, verse 20, the fowl of the air, the beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And man then exercises dominion over his wife at that point in that he gives her a name too. Not in the same way he gave the animals, of course, because they are the image of God together. But the authority is preserved, and so man speaks that authority. So we come through chapter 2. We see quite a dialogue, quite a use of words. In these first two chapters of the Bible, God is establishing the spoken word as that necessary vehicle by which he communicates himself to men and they communicate of themselves back to God. God doesn't need our words, beloved. He reads our hearts and yet tells us, bring me your words. Remember Hosea 14? Take with you words and say, we have sinned. No, words in God's economy are indeed most important. And so in these first two chapters of Genesis, God establishes the spoken word. God's mouth keeps truth, justice, and light. And so man's image bearer must also in his lips bear truth, justice, and light. You see how that works? And then we come to chapter 3. And what is the rebellion in chapter 3? What is the problem in chapter 3? Beloved, it is a problem of words. Now, words are being used for something else. And not only are words being used for something else, but they're being used to doubt the word that God has spoken. You see the strategy of the enemy of your souls? It is not only to destroy the word of God, but to to destroy the vehicle by which we speak one to another and communicate. And so when Satan enters the scene in chapter 3 of Genesis, what enters the scene? Confusion and every evil work. Why? Because words have become perverse. 
I might just remind you for a moment at this juncture what happens in chapter 10 of this book. What are, what are those guys doing there? What are they doing? They say to one another, go to now. Let us make a tower that will stretch up to heaven. And what does God do? God keeps them from saving themselves, which would mean the destruction of themselves, by confusing their sinful words one to another. Well, it's hard to, it's hard to exaggerate then the importance of the spoken word, is it not? So now coming to chapter 3 then, as we move along to chapter 3, and by the way, now we're, we are pressing, uh, uh, we are, uh, how do I say this, we are diametrically opposed to the language philosophers of our day. Rather than words developing out of the grunts and whines of our ancestors, what have we said We have said that words have come from God to men as they are created in his image and they then use those words and what they ought to do in using those words is follow the example of their God who speaks truth and light. There are many that would tell you today that words have have arisen out of a side convenience, out of something that, you know, this is just how people evolve. That when your doggy doggy comes to you and whines, you know he needs to go outside or she, or is hungry, or there's some other problem. And out of that, in the human species, language evolved. Those people that speak that way to you will lie to you about other things too. Be very careful about how we think about the spoken word. It is not the naturalistic result of human desire it is God's ordained method of how he would speak to himself in the eternal councils how he would speak the universe into existence how he would reveal himself in the personal and spoken word how he will communicate himself to man and how man in following the lead of his creator from his first day on earth would speak truth to the world and back to God Beloved, we have a different philosophy of language than the world does. And so we must make sure that our execution of that philosophy of language is consistent with our profession. So we will not use words like the world uses them. How does the world use their words? Like Genesis 3. To drive. To oppress to tempt, to bring down, to insult, to oppress, to kill. What does Jesus say in John chapter 8? Turn with me to John chapter 8 and verse 44. Verse 41, ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. 
Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. There's a different philosophy of language there, isn't there? In John 8, 44. But our philosophy of language must not be like that. Our philosophy of language must come spinning to us from uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Before the fall. Where we see that God is using language among the persons of the Trinity. Making truth commitments. Speaks the world into existence, reveals himself to us by the personal and spoken word or written word, preserves that word for us for all the days, and then gives us mouths to continue speaking that truth to the world around us and back to him in worship and praise and in service. Beloved, you want to know why we have words? That's why. And it's not anything short of that. And it is everything that that implies and this is why Solomon spends so much time in the Proverbs telling us how to speak we must not use our words in any other way except how God our creator and example has given them to us so we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and we read several things there that take place the serpent was subtle what does subtle mean It means he was deceptive, that he's going to use words in a new way. This is something entirely new here now enters in on the scene. We have this wonderful use of words up to this point, all in in agreement and in in obedience to God. We have God and his his being truth itself, right? He is Psalm 31.3, the Lord God of truth. Jesus will say of of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus just told those Pharisees, I abide in the truth. Ye are of your father, the devil who abides in lies and death. In that order. Lies and death. Children, don't ever forget. Every time we're tempted to tell a lie, we're tempted to decline toward death. Death is the result of lies in this world. Lies were told, death ensued. Look at Genesis 3. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Interesting, isn't it? The original is a little bit more explicit than that, I think. I think probably the way King James translators wrote that in the days of the 17th century, it was good. But what he meant to say, if I can put it into our parlance, did God really say that you cannot eat from every tree of the garden? Did he really hold back something from you? Did he put something out in front of you and then say no? What does Satan do there? The first thing he does is he draws God into uh, the faithfulness of God into doubt. 
that God has somehow not spoken truly or faithfully. That what he said is not true and not faithful. As a matter of fact, when the woman responds by perverting the word of God, she's already taken the bait. God said, not only should we not eat it, but we should never even touch it. She becomes a right proper legalist at that point. She starts making stuff up. She's not speaking the truth anymore. She's already taken the bait. And what does Satan say beyond that? You shall not surely die. Bring God's veracity into doubt that what he said was not faithful and true and then that opens the way to a full-on assault of what God said. There's no hell. There's no judgment. There's no resurrection. That's a fairy tale. You don't need to worry about that. That's what they say. And they start that after they talk about the reasonability of God's mercy and love and how God could never hate. Never judge. But he does. And so then it goes downhill from there. And when we take a look then at what follows, we see the use of words to excuse and accuse. We have stopped speaking the truth altogether and we blame all of our wrongdoing on others. And so Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and Adam obliquely blames God when he says, the woman you gave me rather than using his tongue to extol the virtues and love and great condescending kindness of his God, he accuses him instead of depriving him of something he needed and giving him something that brought him into danger. How far we go in just a few short seconds. Now language is used perversely. And may I say, it just goes downhill from there as we read in the ensuing chapters, especially as we get to chapter 6 and the words now of men and the thoughts that are, that are conveyed by those words. Well, they just are only evil continually. But there's one more thing that I want you to notice here before we leave Genesis. That although Adam and Eve have sinned and sinned grievously and used words in their sinning, that God will use words in his restoration of them. What God doesn't do here, and this is most remarkable, I think, is that God doesn't say, <laughs> man, we started out with language and Satan has fouled that. I can't use it anymore. i got to come up with something else. No, he doesn't. Because language corresponds to who he is, as we saw. He spoke language in eternity past. And so he says, no, what we're going to do is we're going to reclaim language. And I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to speak to you in judgment and in mercy. And so we see in the, in the balance of chapter 3 that the Lord speaks mercy and judgment to mankind. And so we have the Proto-Evangelium, right? The promise of a champion redeemer that would come. And would crush the serpent's head. Himself bearing a wound in his heel. 
and that God will redeem the race. And you know how we know that? Because God says so. He uses words. So, beloved, words figure in that necessary capacity all over the Bible, but here especially at the beginning where we might develop a proper philosophy of language. So he speaks reconciliation to Adam and to Eve, and he speaks judgment to the serpent. We see that while Adam and Eve used their words sinfully to excuse themselves, they should have sought forgiveness, but the Lord still offered forgiveness in the champion, in the champion to come in the Redeemer. So will the Lord call us then into account for the words that we speak? Yes, obviously so. Jesus will say that in Matthew chapter 12. Let's turn there for a moment. In Matthew 12, we'll we'll turn to 31 there. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever shall speak against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified. And by thy words thou shalt be condemned. What are words then? But only the bearers of what's in the heart. And so in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus will say pretty much the same thing. In verse 15, Jesus answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto this, uh, sorry, then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not. A man. And so out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, the mouth then becomes the vehicle of what exists in the heart. And you know we see this also, don't we, in God. I will not take the time to turn there because we have another passage I want to spend some time in with you. But it's in Genesis chapter 8 where God says, In his heart I will no more curse man again. Uh, by the by the bringing of a flood upon the face of the earth. I will no more destroy man like that. God said it in his heart. And then in chapter 9, he says it out loud to Noah. The words that came out of God's mouth were already 
in his heart. And the same thing is true of us, beloved. When irritation and sinful anger and impatience and irritability take the, take the uh, form of words coming out of our mouths, they're only there because they were first here. And so Jesus will say, by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. What a great importance has been put by the Lord in this philosophy of language on the spoken word. So I want to go to another passage. We'll close out with this. Please turn with me to Isaiah 59. Whenever I think of lies and the use of language, Isaiah 59 always comes to my mind. Maybe by now I've talked about it enough times with you all. It comes to yours as well. I don't know. This is a, this is a most pathetic passage in the older sense of that word pathetic. In other words, it carries with it much pathos. Right? How does it begin? Verse 59, oh sorry, verse 1, chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Did, did you hear that? We speak to the Lord in his ear. Right? Words, they're being used here. Now watch. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. That's 59.3. And 59.4. None calleth for justice. Notice the use of words. Nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. In 59 and verse 9. Therefore, judgment is far from us, neither doth justice overtaketh, overtake us. We wait for light, but behold, obscurity for brightness, but walk in darkness. What is justice? The pronouncement of just sentence, words, once again. Notice 59.13. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart Words of falsehood and judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Well, you know me, I don't like to read the Bible like one would read a newspaper. But beloved, these are the kinds of days that we live in as well. Not only was it a description of Isaiah's day, it is a description of our day as well, is it not? Words are supposed to be the divine method of communicating truth. But here, truth has fallen in the streets and it not just does not, it cannot enter. The entire environment where truth might obtain has been taken away. Here we are awash in a sea of lies. Now, beloved, you may wonder why Pastor Todd is always hammering on this. 
Because Isaiah and the Lord in Isaiah gives us the answer to this problem. The answer to this problem is not um, uh, entering into discussion to redeem uh, according to the paradigms and language theory of this world to redeem it in that way. That's not how it works. That's how the world, that's how carnal men would put up an answer to this question. But this is not the Lord's answer. Notice what it says here in Isaiah 59. And he, that is the Lord, verse 16, saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Who is that? That's the word. Jesus. Verse 18, according to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, and notice, to the islands. There's no end to the earth he won't go for this vengeance, in other words. To the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy shall come in like a flood, The Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard. And what is that standard? Listen to what it says. Verse 20 and 21. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them. I've spoken this. This is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My Spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord from henceforth and forever. Does that make you weak in your knees to hear that God predicted a day like the day in which we live when truth had fallen in the street and cannot enter and gave the remedy all the way back somewhere around the 9th century B.C. in Isaiah or 8th century B.C. in Isaiah? What did he say? The answer to truth falling in the streets is that I will preserve my word in your mouth and in the mouth of your seed and in the mouth of your seed's seed from henceforth and forever. Our theory of language must center around the Word of God, the personal and the written Word of God. And we must never waver because the Redeemer will come to Zion and He brings His Word. And that's how we overcome the lies that have taken over our current society by sticking close to the truth, the, the Word that God has put in our mouths and the mouth of our children and the mouth of our children's children. Notice he also said, my spirit. Did you hear that? My spirit that is upon thee and my words. It's not enough simply then, beloved, to have the Bible, but to have it in a particular context. And we'll close with this. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 
I trust this will only take a minute because we've been over this, this ground before, but it dovetails so nicely with what we have heard. So we hear about the ascended Christ, that as he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. The gifts he gave, the teaching office of the church, they're to teach the people the word of God, like those ancient Levites of old, they're to seek the law of the Lord at his mouth. That is chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And notice that there is an eschatological or a future understanding of this. Till we all come, Paul says in verse 13, in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And may I say what I believe Paul means here is that in this teaching office of the church, there is to be a continual advancement, age upon age, in understanding and advancing of the word of God. We are triumphalists here. We believe in the, in the eventual triumph of the gospel over the world through the teaching office, through the ordinary means of grace. That's what we believe. We don't believe that Jesus returns to a church on its last gasp that is just about to be overcome by the forces of evil. We believe in the triumph of the gospel through the preaching of the word, just like Paul says here. That we are going to come as the people of God to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God as a perfect man. That we are going to do that. It may be a long time from these days. I don't know. One of my former mentors, Francis Nigel Lee, said, you know, God said that he's going to be merciful to a thousand generations. He spoke that in about 1450 B.C. If you do 40 years for a generation, that's 40,000 years. Just do the math. Therefore, God will be a long time in coming. Well, I don't think that passage is meant to be used like that. But who knows how long the Lord will be in coming. I don't know. I do know that until that time, he's given us the teaching office of the church. That through words, through the foolishness of preaching, through the right use of, of God, for the godly use of language, that the gospel is going to advance. That's the method that Christ has chosen. That's the method that God used in the garden when he preached the gospel to Adam and Eve. And that's the method he's still using today. And it is through that that method then that the church finally will be triumphant. She will come to that knowledge of the Son of God, that perfect man. And so, what will she learn to do then? All along the way, she will recognize that she is a new creation in Christ and she will put off the old man and put on the new man. Isn't that what Paul says here? So, This teaching office of the church, when they use words and do their job rightly, the people of God in verse 15 will speak the truth in love, that we may grow up into him in all things, which is Christ. Notice, she'll speak the truth in love. In verse 22, you have put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now verse 25, wherefore putting away lying, speak the truth to every man, because we are members one of another. We skip down to verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Put off the old man, no corrupt communication. Put on the new man, speak those good communications one to another to the use of edifying. And then in verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, 
evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, put off the old man, and put on the new man, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You see God's method, God's philosophy of language here? That when we put off the old man, we put off fallen ways of using our mouths. And we put on the new man, and we put on redeemed ways of using our mouths. It is indeed a very simple proposition. And this is what Solomon has been telling us in the Proverbs and will tell us over and again. And it's what the Lord told the first family in the Garden of Eden as he used words to communicate to them the gospel. It's God's way of handling the creation. It's God's way of entering into covenant with the other members of the Trinity before time. And beloved, if we would follow the Lord, we'll have a godly and proper philosophy of language. And we will put off the old man with his deeds and put on the new man. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee uh, and we confess, Lord, that this is a convicting topic. Often our words are, well, they have the savor of the old man and not the new. We find that proceeding out of our hearts, although they are faithful and hearts purified by faith, we find that the remnants of corruption often proceed out of our hearts and through our lips. We confess, Lord, that uh, this is a difficult topic for us. As James will tell us, no man can tame the tongue. So, Lord, help us then to remember Matthew twelve thirty-seven: By your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. And help us, Lord, in the use of our, of our mouths, always to set forth that which is good and upright. We pray that, Lord, asking that thou wouldst grant us great increase in the way that we use our mouths, lest we fall under the condemnation of Solomon, the tongue of frowardness shall be cut out. O Lord, we pray, rather than having our mouths stopped, that we may open our mouths and sing thy praise. Grant to us a holy use of our mouths. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.